divine calling or the gift of the divine calling whereby we understood and, and, and I tried to help you uh, understand that as Paul um, uh, reflects upon the, the work of Christ in us in the church, it's by God's grace and a calling uh, to the Lord that we are saved. So you are not here today by your own strength and your own merit and your own um, importance in the world. Uh, You are here because God chose to draw you to himself and save you. And if you don't follow Christ, then you have not been drawn to Christ. Maybe you're in that process. And, and, and one of the things that I thought about this week was, was reminding us how important it is to understand that the divine calling of God, um, it, it ends with a, uh, a bang in a sense, but it's oftentimes a process. So in other words, the Lord, uh, through many days, months, years, is drawing us to himself in different ways. You might think of your own relationship with Christ. And it, 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 it comes to a finality where you believe by faith and trust, your faith is not progressive in a sense that you are, um, you know, one day going to be saved, but you are being drawn to God by understanding the gospel, by understanding the weight of your sin. And he does that oftentimes, especially some of our young people, he's doing that as they grow and mature and understand to the point in which they have a, a moment of regeneration and they believe and trust in Christ. So if you grew up in the church and you're one of those people that can't really pinpoint the day in which or the, or the moment in which Christ saved you, that's okay. Like there's, there's, there's no uh, validity to the little spiritual certificate that's in the front of your Bible that you might have received. That's just a piece of paper. But what you do need to know and understand is that the drawing of, 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 the, of God to Him uh, the drawing of you to the Lord, it, it, it might be a process, but it ends in an effective work. Meaning that it, it doesn't just continue. Uh, when when, when uh, God so chooses for you to be saved, uh, you will have the, the components to believe. You will have an understanding of, of sin. You will have an understanding of the gospel. You will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's part of the divine calling that we thought about last week. We looked at John 8, uh, 24, where Jesus uh, initially calls us with the external call of the gospel. Where we hear the gospel preached and we are saved in John 8, 24, Jesus told the crowds, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We said that that's the effectual call. That's you hearing the gospel preached and proclaimed in one form or one medium or another. But then in John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Therefore, that is the divine internal call, the external gospel proclamation, and the internal effectual call of faith. And both of those, the two-sided coin of God's divine calling, is what we are thankful for as God's people. That it's not based upon yourself, therefore it's not for your glory. You may, may walk an aisle and, and, and talk to a minister and, 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 and have questions and, and seek out such a thing, but understand, church, that you did those things realistically, truthfully, that was reality, but you did them because the Lord was drawing you to Himself. 
by His grace and for His glory. And so the divine call of God awakens our hearts and minds to Christ Jesus so that we respond in faith and trust Him alone for salvation. Without that calling, we would simply be those who reject the external call of the gospel and will face the punish the punishment that follows. So we thank the Lord, and Paul was thankful. He says that he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He later refers to the church of Corinth being called to be saints together. And later in verse 9, he says that by God's faithfulness, by whom we were called into the fellowship of his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the divine calling. We talked about the gift of the church We talked about the beauty of having the gift uh, of of one another. That we are the one another's of the Bible and God has blessed us with this opportunity to be bound together and walking together in the journey of faith. We looked at how the church is first a gift uh, from the Father to the Son and secondly the gift uh, of the church to each other. That we are the gathered people. Stirring each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Paul was thanking them or, or reflecting on his thankfulness for the gift of divine calling to Christ in, unto salvation, the gift of the church. Number three. Where I stopped last week, we didn't get to number three, the gift of purification. The gift of purification. Paul calls the saints in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. The word saints means holy one. Holy one. The idea of being sanctified means to be called out. To be called or separated. When we think about the history of God's people, they were always a people that were called to separate themselves from the pagan nations and the disobedience and unrighteousness that surrounded those people or that permeated those people. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were polytheists. They worshiped multiple gods. They did not honor the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, nor God of the Old Testament. They did not worship Him. They did not honor Him. And so therefore, Jesus, uh, the, the, the Scriptures teach us that we are the, God's people were to separate. That they were to be so sanctified and purified by being reminded that they were to be separate from the unholy peoples of the lands and the nations. And all that was done and all the processes that followed, the purification laws, the ceremonial laws, all those things were to teach them the importance of being set apart and different. Not different in personality, but different in morality and spirituality. That that literally the purification that they participated in physically where they would wash themselves was all to point to the spiritual purification or as we would say, sanctification that God brought upon, upon His people who by faith trusted in Him. 
And so when you get to the New Testament and you see words like saints and sanctified, you understand that that literally just means set apart. That they're holy ones that God has made holy. And so you see that, that the people of Corinth in verse 2 are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The way that that language is written in the Greek means that it was a sanctification in the past caused by God where we are the recipients of that work and that work is continual into the future. So there's a lot there, right? We were sanctified and our sanctification is not something that just happened in the past, but that is continually working in us changing us, making us more holy, caused by God and His power and His strength so that we might rest in Him. We are made holy by the perfections of Jesus. We know, and we say it a lot here, we read this passage so much, I hope that it is familiar to you. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we, in Him, might become the righteousness of God. So it's the perfection of Christ. His obedience, His passive and active obedience in in, in living uh, in this world completely and totally without sin. That we are dependent upon so that we might be sanctified. In other words, we would not be made holy if it was not for the holiness of Christ. That's why Paul can say in verse 8 of our chapter that the church will be sustained in the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ because of Him. He says, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. Because of our fellowship with Christ, because we have union with Him, therefore we bear His perfections. We are clothed in His righteousness and we will be so until the end. Now church, if we don't believe this, as the people of God, guess what happens? We become legalists. We become self-righteous as if we can somehow do something spiritually good in ourselves whereby we are sanctifying ourselves alone outside the power of God. It leads to arrogance. It leads to error. Because above and beyond our sanctification, our process of being made holy and the process in which we were made holy in Christ is solely by the power that He has accomplished or displayed and accomplished in His redemptive work. I love what He says in verse 8, that we will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless because Christ was guiltless. Blameless because He was blameless. Innocent because He was innocent. Perfect because He was perfect in every way. Two weeks ago, I preached at my grandmother's funeral. And I didn't really understand how exactly this was going to go. My grandmother uh, 
grew up in, in, a, in the Catholic uh, environment and was Catholic up until her death. Um, but thankfully, by God's grace, through conversations with my dad and some other influences that she had in her life, we believe that my grandmother had a proper interpretation of the gospel. She understood sin. She understood what Jesus Christ was going to accomplish. And so we're thankful that she understood those things. Sadly, the people that she went to church with did not. Nor did the priest who stood up after me and preached um, the service, nor did he understand the gospel. I had my seven minutes uh, that, that I was allotted. They tried to give me the seven minutes before people even came into the room. And I quickly changed that direction of the service. People came in, seven minutes, I preached the gospel, I preached Christ alone for salvation, the hope that we have in Christ, the rest that we have in Christ alone for our uh, redemption and our salvation in Him. The priest gets up and he literally tries to reverse everything that I just said. Matter of fact, so much so that he uses the parable of the virgins who ran out of oil in their lamps and he literally said that the oil represented the love that we must have in this world and that we must demonstrate in this world so that one day we can enter into heaven. And if you run out of that love and you run out of that oil, you won't make it into heaven. Now church, that is not the gospel. That is your works and the oils that you accumulate, the love that you display in the world. And if you don't display that love, then you haven't accumulated enough good things, good merits in this world to make it into the heavenly gates. Now I tell you that church because there are people that you will come in contact with all around that are preaching a gospel that is dependent upon your merit and your works. And you have to understand that you are being saved and sanctified and preserved by the power of Christ because of what He did alone. But sanctification is what Christ did And our response is a continual living for holiness. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So because of the reality of what Christ has accomplished, we, out of relationship with Christ, live in such a way that we strive for holiness. We strive to be set apart from the culture, not to be in the culture, not to be consumed with the culture. As we talked about, the the people of Corinth were to be in the culture, not of the culture. They weren't supposed to allow the, 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 the sexual perversion and the, the idolatry and all the things that permeated the culture of Corinth to infiltrate the church. They were to be the light of the gospel in the midst of such wickedness. And church, the, the scriptures teach us that we are to shed, as Paul calls it, the old man. Our old life. We are to turn away from the sin 
of our outer self or our, 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 our old man and we are to put on the new self seeking and living holy lives. And this is why we must understand that our purification or sanctification is this process in which Christ has accomplished it for us and we are living day by day trusting in His power to change us. So you shouldn't lose heart. We shouldn't lose heart when we struggle with those sins that are reoccurring in our own lives because we know what Christ has accomplished positionally before the Father and we know that His power will continue to change us day by day. Matter of fact, Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians not to lose heart, though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. So by the power of Christ, you are being made holier day by day as you live in this world because of the power of Christ in you. Without Christ, you're simply being religious. Without Christ, you're just mimicking religiosity. But with Christ, He's transforming you. And any person that's been a faithful believer for years sees that transformation. Without seeing the evidence of that transformation, how can you have any hope or assurance that you belong to Christ? Folks, think about it. The power of God's Word that literally created the mountains is working in you to change you. How could not not, not have an, a lasting effect on us? If mountains sprung up out of nowhere, how could the sanctifying work of Christ day by day in His Word and by His Holy Spirit not have a lasting effect in us? It will. That's how we're being changed day by day by the powerful Word of God. Our responsibility, our obligation, our duty, because of our love for Christ, because of our hope in Him, is to do what Paul tells the, the, uh, the church of Colossae, to put to dead, or to death, excuse me, What is earthly in you? Put to death the old man. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So as Christ does this in you, we pursue the holiness that He has called us to. He empowers us to accomplish it. He challenges us to turn away from those things. And by discipline and faithfulness, we turn from unholy things. 
unholy TV, unholy movies, unholy music, unholy speech, unholy conduct, unholy business practices. We are faithful in all that we do and say and live in this world. And when we fail and we trip up and fall, we repent, resting in the work of Christ, and we move forward. We don't live in shame or guilt. We don't listen to the lies of slander that Satan throws at us when we fail. We trust that the gospel of Jesus Christ will pick us back up and move us forward day by day in our sanctification. That's the work of Christ that he has accomplished for us. But sadly, many Christians want to live in both worlds. We want to live and capitulate with the culture and the unholiness of this world, not separating ourselves from those things. You can see that in our convention as Southern Baptists. You can see that in our schools and in other churches where we're literally trying to appease a, a uh, worldly philosophies all over the place. We want to say, well, what does the world say about equality? And what does the world say about gender? And what does the world say about, uh, you know, salvation? And, and let's take their philosophies and mix them in. That's unholiness. It dishonors the Lord in His name. As well as our own fleshly desires to be like the world. So that we might be accepted and approved of, as if being accepted outside of Christ, if there's some other value in being accepted by the world, and with, with which there's not. We must leave our former ways and seek Christ in holiness. So Paul talks about the gift of divine calling, the gift of the church, the gift of purification, or you might say sanctification. Number four, the gift of riches. Look at verse four through seven. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the gift of grace, or excuse me, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you're not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when I say the gift of riches, you know I don't mean the gift of earthly riches. And in the same way, you understand that Paul is telling you that you are not made rich in him, referring to earthly treasures where moth and rust destroys, but instead you are made rich in Christ. And there is a myriad of ways that we could think about the riches that we have in Christ. Paul particularly is talking about the riches of the spiritual giftings that Paul gives, uh, or excuse me, that the Lord gives us for the church and the, the function of the church. He says that he identifies what he means by our enrichment. 
in verse uh, 5. We were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. What is he talking about? Well, what we will see as we get to verse or chapters 12 through 14 is that Paul is going to have to deal with some ways in which the church of Corinth was abusing spiritual gifts. And again, Paul is addressing that on the front end by reminding them that it is a privilege to be given gifts for our spiritual good to be used in the church. He's reminding them that they have been given these riches so that we might serve the community of the, of, of the believers to be enriched by these things in so much to be used as we wait the revealing of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, these spiritual gifts that are given to us for the edification of the church are to be used and to function in the church until Christ returns. And it's so important for us to understand this because as believers in Jesus Christ, when we understand that God has enriched us with spiritual gifts, that we are literally, you could literally say, we are made rich in Jesus because He gives us these gifts to be used for the church. And these spiritual gifts, which Paul will explain in different ways, (coughs) he gives us two of those spiritual gifts. Speech and knowledge. You might use a synonymous word, utterance. What he's talking about is the way in which the Corinthian church were given the gift of understanding the gospel, which is the knowledge, and the gift of proclamation or utterance or speaking of the gospel to other people. That's why he says in verse 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you or among you. The word testimony there means witness. Your witness about Christ was confirmed in you. The way in which you proclaimed and bore witness of Jesus has been established or confirmed or validated in your ministry. Therefore, he's complimenting them that they are using the gift of speech and knowledge well. I think this is very um, applicable to this day, this Father's Day, as we think about the role of fathers and we think about our responsibility to pass on uh, what we learn about God to our children And when we see the fruit of uh, passing on the treasures of the kingdom to our kids, helping them understand the scriptures, helping them understand the gospel, and we see fruit rise up in them, men, what do we do? We're blessed by that. We're filled with joy to see our children grab hold of these gospel kingdom truths. This is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's encouraged He gives thanks because of this, because of their testimony of faithfulness to the spiritual gifts that God had given them. 
So while he's not their biological father, he is their spiritual father in a sense. And he is encouraged, they have encouraged his heart because of their faithfulness and their spiritual giftings. Reminds me of what John says in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's not talking about his physical children. It's understood that John is talking about the spiritual children that he taught and he discipled. Paul is looking at the church of Corinth as his child. And he's very excited to know that God had given them and made them rich in these spiritual gifts. And therefore they are using them faithfully. So what we must understand, church, is that in the process in which we are saved, God calls us by His divine calling. He brings us into the the body of Christ and we are united in a church family. And He's making us holy, changing us day by day so that we no longer look like our old selves but our new. He's He's also gifting us. So that we might use those gifts, those tools, those resources to be a blessing to the body of Christ. To serve the church. And we must be challenged by that. And Paul gives a myriad of different examples of different spiritual giftings that God wants us to use. That He provides us so that we might be a blessing to one another. Some of you in here have gifts like service. You might be the first one to sign up for a service project, to go cut a brother or sister's grass, to paint a house, to install a a tile in their bathroom. You're willing to pick up your tools and do whatever necessary to help someone else out. That You have the gift of service. Now, everybody should serve, but some people have that innate desire to do those things. Other people have like the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy is is most applicable to situations in the church that that person with the gift of mercy deals more merciful, with with a more merciful attitude than some of the opposite attitudes that some of us might have (laughs) where we lack mercy we're really to take a put the biggest shoe on possible and kick them to the curb but you see that in them you see the the unbelievable amount of patience and mercy that they might show again as i said paul gives throughout the scriptures different examples of spiritual giftings let me give you one romans chapter 12 And I'm sorry, I just realized you're not going to be able to read any of those words, but it's up there. Romans chapter 12, 3 through 8. Listen to what Paul said. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now for the Corinthian church, we will see that they begin to abuse these gifts, using them to their own advantage, doing in, using them in such a way that dishonor Christ. And in doing so, Paul has to call them out and, 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 and seek some form of order and peace again in the use of these gifts. And you can understand, right? You can relate to the reality that, hey, the Lord's blessed me with gifts. That can go to my head. That can lead to some, some arrogance, some overconfidence. I have the gift of mercy. Let me get that on my, my badge that I walk around and wear at church every week. Don't let it go to your head, church. You don't deserve the gifts that God has given you. But He's given them to you, as Paul says, so that we might use them. And when we use them, oftentimes it, 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 it leads us to use them in such a way that it's self-sacrificial. So if your gifting is exhortation or teaching, then the time and the, the effort that you put into studying and, and, and putting together something to say about the Word of God requires your time and resources. And God's called you to that, and you know that He's called you to that. And for the sake of His glory and the purpose and edification of His church, He wants you to utilize those gifts regardless of the sacrifice that's required because He will use you to bring a great benefit and and, um, change in the church. And so you might ask yourself, well, what are my gifts? Well, let me throw these verses up there. These are the three passages, the main passages, that some spiritual gifts are mentioned. I don't believe that these are exhaustive lists. But I do believe that they're helpful lists to think about. Because you can't utilize your spiritual giftings if you don't know what your spiritual giftings are. And you don't know your spiritual giftings if you've never even sat down, prayed, studied, and thought about what has God gifted me to do that I could utilize or be useful in the church. So my prayer, my challenge to you in thinking about the this challenge from Paul, this thankfulness from Paul that, that he's acknowledging that they have been enriched with these spiritual gifts, then my challenge to you is figure out your spiritual gifts and use them for the body of Christ. Utilize them and use them. Study regarding them. Seek the wisdom and the help from other people. Ask other people, other brothers and sisters in Christ, Hey, let me ask you, I've been studying spiritual gifts. What would you say my spiritual gifts might be? Spiritual gifts that edify the church. Attendance to church is not a spiritual gift. 
Your presence here is edifying, but just being here is not necessarily building up the church. Instead, God has called you to serve in in specific ways and gifted you with the tools necessary. Believe it or not, church, I used to be a guy that sat in the pews and listened to sermons every day, and now I'm here doing this. So understand that your spiritual giftings and callings in the church could lead you to places that you may not want to go, but the Lord wants you to go there. And so you serve and you're faithful and you trust that the Lord will use you in a mighty way. John MacArthur, I'll just finish with this quote. He says, Many of us, like the Corinthians, are ignorant of our spiritual gifts and even the fact that we possess them. He says, We need to recognize that we have spiritual gifts and to identify them and use them. We may not know whether we have the gift of teaching, preaching, exhortation, administration, helps, giving, or whatever it might be. And we, and we then must be responsive to the Spirit as He uses us to minister these gifts that He has given to us. So Paul is thankful for these four gifts that we've looked at today. And finally, the last gift is the gift of preservation. Preservation. I love just the flow of the way that Paul is writing here because he's literally taking us on the spiritual journey that we all go on. From divine calling to the final preservation and end when Jesus Christ returns and everything in between. He tells us and the Corinthians, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's now getting them to look forward to Christ's return. And in that return, in that eschatological viewpoint, he reminds them who will sustain you until the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word sustain there in verse 8 most literally means to confirm or validate you. It's a legal term. So what he's not saying, and I would disagree with certain translations, for example, like the NIV misses the point in their translation. The NIV says, he will make you strong to the end. Well, that's a true statement. He will make you strong to the end. But the wording in the Greek language here is talking about the legal validation of something. And for us to understand the validation that occurs because of Christ, we understand that He has validated us as holy, as blameless, as guiltless, as saved, as forgiven, These are legal, confirming, validating declarations about ourselves. So it's not about the strength that will get us there. It's about Him who gets us there with the seal that we have in Christ. 
We are sealed in Him. So the sustaining work of Christ is about the validation or the confirming that He has placed upon us that keeps us until the end. What's that based upon? What's His confirmation based upon? It's based upon the character of God. Look at verse 8. God is faithful. So it's not about us being strong, even though Christ makes us strong. It's about His character. God's faithfulness validates us and confirms us. How does He do that? By His Word and His power. By His Word, His promises speak they, 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 they point forward ahead to what God is doing and, and, and accomplishing. We know that because of His character, God never lies. Therefore, His promises validate what He does. His promises to send the Messiah are validated in Jesus. His Word and His character validate us. So we are going to be preserved in the end because of God's character. Because He is a faithful God. And because His promises are based on His character, every follower of Jesus then therefore is tethered to Christ because the promise to secure and keep His people has been validated in the character of our eternal God. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a confirmed and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. Jesus Christ, as the living Word of God, is the validation, the one who validates us, who confirms us because of the work of Christ. Therefore, because of His work, we are sustained. In other words, if we fall away from Christ, God is a liar. If we fall away from Christ, then Jesus must have sin. Because throughout the Scriptures, the prophets promised the Messiah would come. And all those promises were pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus comes on the scene and He confirms in Himself that He is the fulfillment of those promises. And that believing in Him and trusting in Him, we will be kept until the end. So all those things fall away into falsehood and lies if if God didn't have perfect character, if He was not always trustworthy and faithful. But because He is, and because Jesus Christ came, we are validated and confirmed until the end because of the faithful character and Word of God. And we are carried into the end. We are anchored 
to Christ and therefore by his power we will be sustained until the end. So not only does his word and his character preserve us, but his power preserves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is where I encourage you, church, that up until this point, if you have thought of your salvation with some form of humanistic arrogance, as if you have done something to accumulate spiritual worth before God, may it die today in this understanding of salvation. Because if you try and rationalize away the power of God and His sovereignty to choose you for salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world, then it's illogical for you to hold to His power to keep you into the end. Your theology is imbalanced. If you reject His sovereign election and calling to Christ, then you cannot hold to His divine power to keep you into the end. That is an imbalanced argument. But if by faith we trust that God's electing power has brought people from death to life by His sovereign love and choice to save these people, not people who are arrested by man's free will, and only, and only operates in such a way where man chooses to love God by faith. No, instead, when we believe that by God's power He elects and saves and sanctifies, then we understand that by God's power He keeps us till the end. It's the only rational, logical argument in a balanced, ordered revelation of God in His sovereign control and rule. So therefore, as 1 Peter says, this inheritance, these things by which these blessings that we receive because of Christ are being kept by His power, are being guarded by His power, ready to be revealed in the last time. So therefore, we are thankful that He keeps us. We are thankful that We may stumble and we may trip, but we will not fall away. God's power would not allow us to fall away. In a moment, we're going to sing these words. The Lord is in the the hymn, the Lord is my salvation. It says, when I reach my final day, He will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise, He will call me home, the Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God, strong to save Faithful in love, my debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. Christ has accomplished it all from beginning to end. And therefore we conclude, I conclude this sermon today calling us to thankfulness in what Christ has done. Calling us to reflect and be thankful for the 
the way in which God has made us benefactors of His glory and purposes. That if you are a follower of Christ and you are a recipient of this divine calling, the gift of the church, the work of purification, the riches in Christ, and His preservation. And we rejoice and we're thankful for all that He's done so that we might sing about it as Adam comes and leads us. And if you don't know Christ, then you have nothing to sing about. You have no celebration in your heart. You're merely mouthing the words to fit in. And so let me challenge you today to look to Christ as the way of escape and trust in Him for salvation that can only be found in His name. Father in heaven, we thank You for the great work of Christ. What an amazing way to start our journey in the study of 1 Corinthians than to think about the ways in which You have worked in the church to draw us to Yourself, to save us and sanctify us, to give us gifts to serve the church and to keep us until the end. Father, for that we are thankful that You have accomplished these things in Your Son. And so we sing and praise His about His wondrous works, about His glorious might. We sing about these things because we are thankful that He has changed us. And we pray for people here today that have not trusted in Christ, that are maybe listening online, watching online, God, that that You might draw them to Yourself. They've heard the Gospel many times. They know what Jesus has done. They understand the depths of their sin, Father, but only You can open their eyes to believe. And so we pray fervently, passionately, that You would open the eyes of the lost and that they would believe and trust in Jesus. Only You can do that. And that they can come as they are. Tethered, rags, broken and bruised from this world, dead in their sins and trespasses, and You will give them new life in You. And so Father, we praise You and thank You for such a marvelous work that You've accomplished in Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together.